think that this parable that Jesus lays out is a great illustration. This is the parable of the weeds. And in Matthew 13, 24-30, it states this, He, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the, of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, And do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. But there you see weeds, and you see wheat, or darnel. As you look at that picture, they're kind of difficult to tell apart, would you say? If somebody is not used to sowing wheat, you would probably not know. I did not grow up on a farm. I have only pulled roses from a garden at a flower shop. So I look at that and I have no clue what is what. But on the left you're going to find wheat and on the right you're going to find darnel. But you don't know the difference, as the parable says and illustrates, until they are fully grown, until they bear their fruit. Jesus goes on to explain that the Son of Man sows the seed, the good seed, into the world, while the devil sows the bad seed into the world. One sows truth, the other sows lies. They each grow, yet it isn't until they are mature that you can tell the difference, not until they bear their fruit. Same soil, different results. You could take that slide down now. We've all been there, right? We have either watched from afar, we've watched up close, or we're currently watching it now. But we've all known someone, someone who was in church, on the same path as you, or maybe your child for a time. Maybe they were in a lawn of EVS youth group and got baptized the same year as you, or maybe your child. Maybe they even played on the worship team. Or maybe they were someone who professed Christ later in life, coming from a particularly difficult background, but yet came to the knowledge, or at least understanding, of Christ. And they called on his name. Yet now... Well, now they're not in church. And they aren't in church because their life reflects a person who does not hold to the truths they once professed. Their supposed joy has faded, and the person that they were at the beginning, well, they, it doesn't resemble the person they are now. Their life in Christ seems to be devoid of, well, life. Maybe they have even stated it as such, I don't believe what you believe. What was inside now has revealed itself, or as Jesus said in Luke 6.45, out of the abundance or the overflow of the hearts, their mouths have spoken. They have confessed what is truly in there. And as the tree has grown, it has revealed its fruit. As we continue to look at 1 John, Pastor Aaron noted in the last several weeks how John is addressing not only the fact that Christians, as Christians, we act like Christians, in other words, we remain in the light and we do not remain in the darkness as Christians. And as Christians, we love other Christians. He talked about this last week. We love each other as Jesus first loved us. We don't hate each other as Christians. That's how the world recognizes us, that we love each other and we love each other well. 
But John also emphasizes that as Christians, we believe the right things, particularly about the person, Jesus Christ. Our doctrine is consistent when it comes to the Son of God. And knowing that antichrists have come and will come, John wants to warn and encourage the church, showing them that the signs and the safeguards regarding the deception in the coming days. And so let's look at verse 18. John starts with the sobering reality that this is the last hour. What he means by the last hour is basically this, that after Jesus has come, he's come down from heaven, he's lived his life, he's died for our sins, and he's been resurrected, he's ascended to the Father, where he sits now at the right hand of God, mediating between us and God. And the world right now is in its almost chaotic state that we perceive, yet God and Christ is there saying, no, this is where I reign and this is what's happening. That is where he is. But until that time comes when he comes again for his church, for the people who have called on his name, we are now in that last hour. That last hour. This is not a literal hour. And so he knows that in this time, and because of the Antichrist, there have been many Antichrists, they will come. And Jesus addresses the reality of false teachers in the last day or the last hour, that we should be on the lookout for them and to not be deceived. He says this in Matthew 24. Paul also uses similar terminology during the last hour and warns of the same thing in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, he says, or the last hour, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And so John, in consistent pattern, first with Christ, also with Paul, and now with himself as once young listening to Christ, now older listening to Christ, is recalling the things that Jesus has taught him, certainly in that passage in Matthew, but even as he's grown and as the Spirit has used him, he's seeing come into play the parable that we read earlier and the reality that in the last hour there are going to be weeds among the wheat. Now in that parable that is told uh, in reference to the world, However, what we have in the church, and the local church, is the overflow of what comes in from the world. Somebody's curious. Somebody pops into church. Somebody stays in the church. Somebody likes the moral applications that the church is providing for their child. They like Iwana. They like VBS. There's some fun activities. They might be engaged in worship. You might have fog machines in your worship. Hey, I like that. That's cool. That's engaging. Let me stay here for a while. I am entertained. Either my conscience is cleared from the moral lessons that are being provided, and I'm soothed so that when I go out I feel good about myself, or I'm engaged just from how they do this thing called church. That's cool. That pretty much looks just like what I go to on Friday night concert, so I like that. But you just kind of package what's inside. I see what you did there, a little bait and switch. But they like it. It's soothing. So those weeds are in with us. And maybe they're there for one month. Maybe they're there for one year year. Maybe they're there for a few decades, but they are there. And so John comes and in lockstep with Christ's teachings and warnings follows suit along with Paul, giving signs to his hearers about what he calls the Antichrist, small a. And I'll just say, just because I'll be saying Antichrist many times, 
um, that this would be the precursor to the capital A Antichrist at the end. The devil sows seeds of deception and lies all the time. These are merely the conduits by which that happens. These are people. These are philosophies and deceptions that Paul calls them. These are things that are sown into the church and to people of God so as to deceive them. So when I say Antichrist, it's small a. Sign number one, as John walks us out, they depart from the fellowship. In verse 19, John first links the Antichrist's activity, not only with Jesus' confirmation of the last hour, but with the understanding that, quote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Something to think about here is the word association. Association is key. Remember, last week we just got done acknowledging that those who walk in the light as he is in the light have fellowship with one another. The primary means of us fellowshipping, of us getting together on Sunday morning, what we call church is us being the church and we have fellowship with one another primarily for proclaiming Christ. We're lifting up his name together. With one voice, as one body, we proclaim the name of Jesus. It is central to everything we do in service. Worship isn't just when we sing. Worship carries throughout through the preaching, the prayers, and so we leave this time. This is a worship service. Worship isn't the slow songs. Worship isn't the fast songs. Worship isn't just the preaching. Worship isn't just the praying. The entire service is worship pointed to the person of Christ. Fellowship with one another. When he talks about fellowship with one another, that is what it is. If you're not necessarily talking about Christ in your service, and it's not dominant throughout it, it's not anchored to it, I would suggest that's not fellowship. So when I use the word fellowship, this isn't, this isn't two or three or gathered down the street necessarily. This is the body of Christ being together. He is writing to churches. When we fellowship, we're gathering around the person and the work of Christ. People who confess Christ are in the light, it said. We talked about last week. They are gospel-centered. They spend time with and are mutually edified by those who confessed Christ. We are intentionally built up by God for that purpose. We are members of one body, yet bring to the table our uniqueness. But our sameness would be that Christ has saved us. 1 Corinthians 12, a verse you're common with, but understand this is the concept here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink from one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. But he's understanding that we are a body. We're still together. We are one made for each other. And what's happening here is as we lose sight of Christ, we lose sight of our created need for each other as members proclaiming Christ together. Gathering together as the church becomes less and less appealing because our love of the gospel and our need for the church wanes. And once the gospel becomes less evident, the guardrails are taken off and the church is no longer a beacon by which our faith is affirmed and our gifts are discerned. The eventual outcome is that we start to see the flaws, the inconsistencies, and the perceived hypocrisy, and we creep back more and more into the world as we point the finger at everyone else on the way out. You people you're hypocrites. None of you live right. Have you seen what goes on around here? And the gospel is far from them, and you become distant, and you're no longer anchored, and you go out, and you're not of the church anymore. That fellowship, 
Those who don't believe in the gospel and the need and the purpose of his people call the church the body of Christ. The head is Christ. The body, that's us. We're made to be together. When you don't want a part of the gospel, you start to withdraw from that fellowship and you eventually find yourself not going to church. Sundays aren't necessarily important. They become even more distant and now you're outside of the church. Those who are the antichrists are the ones who are withdrawing from the fellowship of the body. Sign number two, they deny the truth, particularly about Jesus, and thus, if you deny the truth about Jesus, you're denying the truth about God. In verse 22 and 23, John states this, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So the primary reason we gather as a church, as I said, is to come and lift up the person of Christ, that we would bring glory and honor to his name. Our entire worship service looks at that. And so we look at how Christ is revealed in Scripture, and we want to discuss those things. We want to worship with those words. We want to proclaim those truths from the pulpit and in Scripture, so that when you deny that Jesus is the Messiah as revealed in his word to us, and when we deny the Son, John says that ultimately you are denying the Father. In short, you can't parcel out the Godhead and expect to be in favor of his bride, the church. You cannot want the Father, yet reject the Son. You don't get either. And so John is saying, hey, the people who have gone out from, um, from us, these are the same ones that no longer gather in fellowship. They withdraw from us, but yet they also deny the Son. In 1 John 4, 3, if you just flip there, just one other page probably in your Bibles, 1 John 4, 1 through 3, John adds some more to their false teaching regarding the Son. So he kind of completes the picture of what some more about what this false teaching looks like. He says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Listen to this. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Again, he's linking these two passages. This isn't some different thing. This isn't some different spirit. Antichrist and that these spirits that are proclaiming false things that don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, they're one and the same. They're spouting the same lies. They're saying that Jesus, the Son, is not Jesus, the Son. Jesus is something else. We don't know specifically what it is. But he links this passage, and he says, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So not only do they deny the Son, but particularly they deny the Son who came in the flesh. So to sum up, in just those two passages, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, he says this. Um, their denials about the second person of the Trinity, they say that Jesus isn't the Messiah, they deny the Son altogether, and they don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. These are the people that were, for a time, they were part of the church to whom John is writing. So remember, keep the context. He's writing to a church. These people who deny these truths about who Jesus is were in their pews, sitting right next to them, in their maybe small groups, probably in their small groups, because the church back then, that's how they met. They rubbed shoulders with them. They ate with them. They said some of the vocabulary, but they never quite defined it out. And so they never hold those truths dear to their heart. I was thinking as I was listening to this, my mind often thinks of too many things at once, 
fun time, as many of you know, when you talk to me and how you avoid me. But I kept thinking of the, the Princess Bride. How dare I say a movie from the pulpit? Forgive me, Pastor Aaron, who is away right now. But I can imagine that as their views of Christ became more evident before their leaving, that they were talking about Christ, and everybody who was a true Christian in there would look at them and say, you keep using that name. I do not think it means what you think it means. (laughs) I apologize for the poor Spaniard accent. Thank you for confirming that. But the reality is they're talking about a Jesus, and oftentimes in our world today, we all talk about Jesus. But let me ask you, what Jesus are you talking about? What Jesus is coming out of our mouth? Is it the Jesus that is the primary character in the reconciliation of God and his people? Or is it the Jesus that makes you feel warm and fuzzy on the inside every day with the sins that you want to remain in as you fall farther and farther away and reveal that you're never rooted in Christ? By the way, I didn't ask for this particular message. This was the passage I was given. <laughs> Though we're not exactly sure of the particular heresy dealing with Christ, we do know that the early church battled many heresies that challenged the deity of Christ, that Christ was both completely God and completely human. A short list of some that have garnered historical attention would be these. In the second century, we had adoptionism. What is adoptionism? And this is some little lessons here because I think it's important that when you hear people talk about Christ, they speak about him in the right way. If they speak about him in the wrong way, there's, there are labels for that, that the church historically has said, this is what that is, and this is what we call it, and that's why it's wrong. And so I want you to know some of these words because I think it's important to be educated on some of that because they resurface today. Adoptionism taught Jesus was simply a man who was tested by God and after passing the tests was given supernatural powers and adopted as a son. This occurred at his baptism. Jesus was then rewarded for all he did and for his perfect character and his own resurrection and adoption into the Godhead. So he eventually went into the Godhead, that he was not in it, but he eventually went into it. This would suggest that Jesus eventually became God and was not eternally part of the Godhead. So it blows the Trinity out of the water. But you say, Kevin, wow, second century, that was a long time ago. Why don't you revisit Mormonism today? See, if any of that rings a bell, or that, that they misconstrued some of that, but utilized some of it for their doctrine on the person of Christ. They don't have anything called Christology because they see Christ as somebody different. Second century, Docetism. That's a brutal century, I'm going to tell you that right now. Docetism taught Jesus only appeared to have a body and was not truly incarnate. Docetists viewed matter as inherently evil and therefore rejected the idea God could actually appear in bodily form. Sounds familiar to what some of what John is writing about. By denying Jesus truly had a body, they also denied he suffered on the cross and rose from the dead. You think that's an important line item? Yeah? Yeah. Today... Gnosticism, New Age beliefs, and Christian science adherents believe comparable doctrine. Revisited once again. Revisited once again. Fourth century. This is the last one I'll teach you. Arianism taught Jesus was a creature. 
who is begotten of the Father. Only God the Father is unbegotten. In this view, only the Father is truly God. He was too pure and perfect to appear here on earth, so he created the Son as his first creation. The Son then created the universe. God then adopted Jesus as a Son, because after all, Jesus and God are not supposed to have the same nature in this particular view. Jesus was worshipped only because of his preeminence as the first creation. So he wasn't God, but he was merely a creation of God. Today, who adheres to this? Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking at your door. When they talk about Jesus, and when they might utilize the firstborn over all creation, they interpret it this way, that Jesus was created outside of the Godhead. That does not jive with doctrine. That does not jive with Scripture as it's revealed who Jesus is. They are the modern-day Arians. So, you'll know the Antichrist says they depart from the fellowship, that they deny the truth about Jesus, and the sign number three, they try to deceive the faithful. In chapter 2, verse 26, it writes, John writes this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Evidently, those who are on their way out and departing the fellowship wanted to lure and drag others with them. As Paul would say, they look for those with itching ears because they do not want to endure sound doctrine. If you have been in church long enough, this is just not difficult to imagine, is it? You have some person or persons that have gotten to the point of being fed up with all of this Jesus stuff that you preach. And they begin their exit over the course of a few weeks, or as I said, a few months, or maybe even years. And as they do, they start to deposit into your life the ridiculousness of believing this ancient thing called Christianity. Some of what they say might sound like this, and maybe it will become familiar as they list some of these things. You hear them whisper into your ear or in subtle conversations. God doesn't care enough about you away from up in heaven. This mess of our own doing, we have to deal with it. Send his son? For what purpose? Or maybe they say, Jesus isn't returning. That's just about, supposed to make you feel good. That crutch. Or Jesus didn't physically die on the cross. It was a metaphor for suffering. Maybe you hear, why would a father pour out wrath on his son to pay for our sins? Since he didn't commit, he then bears the brunt and the wrath from the father. That is sadistic and assuredly not the God I serve, would you? How could God look upon two people of the same gender who truly love each other with disdain? If God is love, surely love is God. And if love is God, then love is love. And God is all about love. It's all about any union forged in that word called love. I mean, right? Right? Can't we define love? Why does God have to define it? Christianity is, an ancient, is ancient. There's no hope today for the Christianity as the Bible describes it. A little updating to God wouldn't hurt any, would it? A little cut and paste, a little project with the Bible, a little poster board, things I like, things I don't like, create size, divide it down in two. That's the Bible I like. Well, until next year, until you find out something else that annoys you or offends you or hurts you, and then that goes away. Pretty soon you don't even have a Bible left. I believe the Jesus Seminar is doing that every single year, deciding what should be in the Bible, what shouldn't be in the Bible, what Jesus actually said and what he really didn't say, or what he meant by what he actually said. Warnings are consistently throughout the letters to the New Testament church as it's forming. 
from Jesus to Paul to Peter to the author of Hebrews to John to the revelation given to John by Jesus, warnings will always be there so as to keep his church sober and on the path that leads to eternal life. It's for, and they are for, our good. Watching our company, our doctrine, and the deception around us will go a long way when it comes to checking the health of our souls or the health of our gathered church. How many of you have heard any of those questions or things thrown at you? One, two, three, four. I would suggest that as a church we get into more conversations with those who don't believe in Christ then. You will hear them and you will hear often. But John doesn't leave them with just an awareness of the Antichrist whose doctrine is separating and deceiving. John gives them two primary ways in which they can safeguard themselves. The first is this. It's the Word of God. In verse 24, John shows them a key to this not happening to them when he says this in verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that, made, that was made to us, eternal life. So John flips the script when addressing the church. Those who left the church did not remain or abide in the church or with them. However, John now uses that same word when pointing out that having the testimony and confession of Christ abide in them will reap rewards of eternal life. And so if you turn two chapters over again to chapter 4, he says this in 1 John 4, 1 through 6, and he brings light to more regarding this confession that should abide in them. He says this, starting in verse 1, chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone into, out into the world, and by this you will know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, again linking them, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. It says in verse 4, Little children, you are far, you are from God, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. And whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John is saying, listen to our confession. What we proclaim to you about who Jesus is. And remember, at the very beginning of John, this is how he starts it out. Uh, first, first John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have touched. We were with him. He showed us the miracles. We were there. He imparted this to us. The Holy Spirit then revealed it to us. We're passing this on to you. We're giving this to you. Listen to what we said. The scriptural truths that John wants them and us to remember are what was revealed to the apostles through the Holy Spirit to lead them into all truth, which is now what's contained in the Word of God. It's the scripture. It's the words. It's the revelation of who Jesus is, how he came to redeem us. It was in a very particular way through the person and the work of a God-man called Jesus Christ. It is he who mediates for us. When we pray, the only reason it reaches the Father's ear is because Christ is there. 
And he's not just there saying it's a throughway. He's saying, well, uh, well I, I see what you're saying. I'm going to reinterpret this for what you actually need. And so Christ interprets our prayers to the Father by what we actually need, and it comes back to us the same way, through the blessings of Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. John is saying, that is the testimony I pass down to you. For us, it is the word of God. Abide in the word. He's given it to us. There's a quote in your bulletin by Denny Burke, and he says this, The Spirit of Christ is saying, Listen to my apostles. The Spirit of Era, verse four, chapter, I mean, chapter 4, verse 6 says, Don't get hung up on the apostolic teaching. Just focus on Jesus. The Spirit of Era trades in the lie that we can know Christ apart from the apostolic revelation of him in Scripture. If you refuse to listen to and believe in the apostolic portrait of Jesus, you're listening to the spirit of the Antichrist, as they say in two, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 22. You'll hear today, and the only reason I, I put that quote in there I think is important, because right now you'll hear, or if you read arguments, or if somebody wants to repost arguments, you'll hear, well, Jesus didn't say that. Paul might have said that, but Jesus didn't say that. So what Jesus says is more important than what Paul says. And what they do is they pit Scripture against each other. But the problem is this is that the Gospels was not written by Jesus. It was written by other apostles. So if you're going to deny what they wrote over here, why would you deny what they wrote in regard to the Gospels and their portrait? There's a consistency in the witness of Scripture. It's consistent through and through about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You can't pit Scripture or author or book against one another. It supports each other. And the second safeguard is this. It's a spirit. In chapter 2, verse uh, 26 and 27, he says this, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Again, this abiding in, this remaining in. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Okay, first on that word anointing, uh, that's the Spirit's revelation, illumination, and impartation of who Christ is. In other words, they have been actually saved. God made them alive by his Spirit. In the Old Testament, someone who was anointed by God, it signified that God's Spirit was with them for a particular purpose and a particular reason that God would communicate through them. But this side of the cross, and this side certainly of Acts chapter 2, when God's Spirit fell down, now His Spirit dwells within us, giving us hearts of flesh and of stone. And so God's Spirit dwells in each believer. What is this talking about? This is talking about salvation. When God illumined your life, and He breathed the Spirit into you, and made you alive. You were once dead, but now you are alive. This is that anointing that is with us each believer, from salvation, regeneration, and on. And in the New Testament, on this side of the cross, we know all of God's people have that, not just some. Paul says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself that's in us bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We sung about that. There is a constant testifying by God's Spirit in whose we are, where we abide, 
Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Amen? God does not send us his spirit without its purpose. Its purpose is to testify to the person of Jesus Christ and that that testimony would remain in us. Amen. He sends his spirit to do so. And John knows this and encourages the church to not fear the reality that antichrists are here among us. In 1 John 4, 4, he says this, Little children, little children you are from God and, over, and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. When you make that statement, understand what you're saying. You're testifying to Christ. It is he who overcomes the world. It doesn't mean that you won't be martyred. It doesn't mean that things will automatically work out. It doesn't mean you're going to win the football game. It doesn't mean you're going to pass the test. It doesn't mean that the difficulty is going to go away. What the Spirit is doing is testifying that you are sealed in Christ Jesus, that you remain in Him. That verse is not about everything is honky-dory. So He's going to overcome everything for me. I am now going to walk on water. No. Like, no, you're not. You're going to drown. But it's saying... That he was in us, that's Christ, will overcome the world because we will be with him one day. Eternal life is what we're promised with the Father. That's why we have the Son, that fellowship and that relationship. And the Holy Spirit, the job of God, the Holy Spirit, is to seal that in, that that would be ever on our lips, always proclaimed to our heart, that we would confess that. Now, putting this in modern day, I'm going to actually close with two very recent examples of this happening. Thank you to social media via Twitter. We get to grieve from afar, but we also get to pray for those deceived. It was a, a few months ago, actually, in a, our, I want to say it was our last prayer service we had in the, uh, in the summer, I wrote up the name Joshua Harris. Now, for those who are my age and those who are uh, maybe even a little bit younger, um, know who he is. He was a stalwart, um, I would say reformed gentleman, knew the Orthodox faith very, 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 very well. Loved the Lord dearly, worshipped among people, was on a platform like this, multiplied much larger, much larger. The protege of a denomination of sorts, that he would then lead it. But eventually, things crept into his mind. He withdrew from the pulpit, maybe even for good reasons, went to seminary where he learned in academia some liberal thought processes, understanding Christ in a different way than the scriptures revealed. This was over a period of years. And then he eventually posted this, and I will quote from him. I have undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. The popular phrase for this is deconstruction. You might also hear the word deconversion. That's trendy now. It's pretty cool to say I'm deconverting, unfortunately. The biblical phrase, he says, is falling away. By all the measurements that I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. That should break our hearts, church. I 
I can go back to the beginning where I said, do we know people in our life who right now are in a trajectory that suggests that their fruit is not real? This should break our hearts. Many people tell me that there is a different way to practice faith, and I want to remain open to this, but I'm not there now. He goes on to say that he's sorry for all the various views he held, that many have, that he's offended many different people and groups, and he ends with this. To my Christian friends, I am grateful for your prayers. Don't take it personally if I don't immediately return calls. I can't join in your mourning. I don't view this moment negatively. He says these words, I feel very much alive and awake and surprisingly hopeful. I believe with my sister Julian that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. So if we think about 1 John, does this fit the pattern that he's laid at least out with the people in his church? He left the flock. He denies the truth. Well, Kevin, what about deception? He has 80,000 Twitter followers. 80,000. The intent of being on Twitter is to have followers. You cannot tell me that his intent is not to deceive others. Redefining the truth, relegating scripture to but a manual that some people use. Or worse, the person of Christ is not who the person of Christ is, at least as the Bible describes. One more example, in case you think that was some anomaly. Literally days later, days later, I read from Marty Sampson. You might not know who he is. He wasn't a preacher. But Marty Sampson is a Hillsong worship leader. He's a writer and a singer. He's, he's written probably, if you know a Hillsong song, you know probably 80% of them he's written. He's insanely influential uh, within that, uh, I'll call it a denomination in essence, that fellowship of churches. And he begins his tweet with this, Time for some real talk. Because this isn't real talk, by the way. I'm genuinely losing my faith, and it doesn't bother me. What bothers me now is nothing. I am so happy now, so at peace with the world. It's crazy. The irony is that the remainder of this tweet is all about what he deems as unaddressed issues in Christianity that are bothering him. But remember, nothing's bothering him right now. Deceived, he's deceived. Truth, certainly unraveling. He's taken his tweet down, by the way. Hopefully, by God's grace, he's been corrected and encouraged and buffered and discipled. Trying to deceive others? 1.1 million followers on Twitter. 1.1 million. John gives us his words first as a warning. But he doesn't just say, I warn you without giving us the answers. God's word, God's witness, the person of Jesus, all laid out in these books of Scripture. God's spirit deposited in us is what gives us the good news, testifying to the work of Christ in our lives. What does he say? He says, remain, abide, confess. Remain, abide, confess. Remain, abide, confess these truths. 
It's why we have the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. Creeds throughout the generations had to establish what was the mark by what the Bible says so that we continually confess these things. Why? Because we go astray so easily. There's not a new tactic by the enemy to sow a lie into people's lives and to wreak havoc on churches. And the gospel eventually becomes unrecognizable. What Jesus are you talking about? Church, I say it a lot, and I will keep saying it from this pulpit. I almost hope that you think, here he goes again. This is what he's going to say. I truly do. It would be my joy. Preach the gospel to yourselves and to Christians around you. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Know who you are in Christ. Know what he's done for you because that initiates the joy by which you want to preach it to your brother and to your sister who are sitting right next to you. It creates the longing for them to come back to the faith that they would know the true God and actually have joy. constantly and consistently frame the picture of Christ that the Bible paints, which means if we should personally and actively disciple our children and ourselves in the Word of God regarding the truths of God by the Spirit of God, or we too will be on the road to deconversion. We have abiding in us the glorious gospel. This is the good news. If it no longer is good news to you, if when you say God is good, are you seeing how great is our God? If it doesn't resonate from your soul, preach the gospel to yourselves. There is joy in the presence of a God who died for us, who gave us everything that we would be with him, not because he needed us, but because we desperately, so desperately needed him. And he wanted to include us in his plan. That is a good thing. He's not leaving you to hell or to destruction. He says, no, there is a way, and it is through the work of Jesus Christ. That should bring us joy. That should bring us joy. That is where our worship comes from, not from where we are in life, because right now many of us are facing circumstances that do not create joy externally. But in our hearts, no one can steal the joy that Christ has deposited in us, that the Spirit confesses within us and testifies to that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. Your word says to taste and see that the Lord is good. And you have demonstrated that through the work of Jesus Christ. Help us understand the deception that is out there. Help us understand where people are as they back away. Help us understand the truth about who the Son of God is through your word the purposes of us proclaiming it, abiding in you, but also for the purposes of reaching out to those who are shying away and backing away. May our hearts long for their return as we know it's possible. Guard our hearts, build your church, be glorified this day. In Jesus' name, amen.